0: Welcome to The Commercial Disco, a voyage of commercial discovery. This episode is proudly brought to you by CSIRO, Australia's national science agency and innovation catalyst. Explore the commercialization of great ideas across deep tech and science. Immerse yourself in conversations with the ambitious minds shaping Australia's unique innovation landscape. Discover their insights into what's needed to bring these remarkable ideas to life.
1: Hello and welcome to the commercial disco. I'm James Riley, editorial director at InnovationOz.com. Today I'm talking to Hon Weng Chong, the founder and CEO of Cortical Labs. Welcome, Hon. Hi, James. Thanks for having me on the show. Okay, we are going to jump straight into the tech, and we'll probably come back to some business and uh, policy questions. But Cortical Labs and your team at Cortical Labs have trained human brain cells on a computer chip to play Pong as a first-out use case. So let's just step us through that. Yeah. What are you doing?
2: All right. So let's take a few steps back, and we can say that there's currently a race to build artificial generalized intelligence, right? So OpenAI, DeepMind, they've all been trying to do this. DeepMind was primarily doing it via reinforcement learning, OpenAI with GPTs and large-language models. But they're all sort of silicon-based. And uh, our approach at Cortical Labs was to go back and sort of observe nature. And if you think about it, the only sort of generalizable intelligence that we kind of know of, that we think is feasible, biological nature. So a dog, a cat, human, you know, an octopus, all possess the ability to have very good world models, manipulation of uh, in the environment, the real-time aspect of the information processing and action. Uh, led us down this path of thinking about, could we use neurons, which are the basic building blocks of brains and the nervous system, as the base unit for intelligence computation? So the way we do this, and we started out doing this with mice. So we had an experiment about three, four years back where we sacrificed some embryonic mice. We removed the brain, removed the coating, the outside, the meninges, and then disassociated the neurons. So From the brain, we can shake it in a bath of trypsin, and that breaks down the connective tissue, and you end up with a soup of neurons. We then take those neurons, and we put them in a computing chip. Now, neurons, when they want to send a message to one another, communicate via electrical impulses. So because it's sitting on a computing chip, we actually can see when the neurons are talking to one another. And these chips are also interesting because we can deliver a bit of a voltage or a stimulation to them. So if you have the ability to read and you have the ability to write, you now have input-output into a biological material that, had we not interrupted the natural development process, would have turned into a brain. And so what we then did was we said, okay, we're putting this in a computer chip. We can see when they're firing their activity. We can also provide a stimulation back to them. What if we closed the loop? What if we took the outputs of these neurons, put them into a computer program that interpreted the actions of these neurons... In a simulation program, affected the simulation, and then the outputs of that go back into the neurons, so you get a full closed loop environment. And so we did that. And as any classic reinforcement learning or control systems theory people would tell you, the hello world of that space is pong. So we set about trying to show that these neurons, when put into a closed loop system that could control the paddle and observe the actions of moving the paddle in relation to a ball moving in that space could learn to actually move the paddle to intercept the ball and and keep the game in motion. So we did that, and it turned out that you also needed an extra piece to that puzzle, which is how do you reinforce a behavior that you want, which is moving the paddle to hit the ball rather than not bothering and missing it. And so this is where we used a theoretical framework developed by Professor Carl Friston at UCL called the Free Energy Principle, which posits that all biological systems are essentially Bayesian generative machines that we're predicting ahead of time what the world is and using our observation for confirmation and our ability to manipulate these environments as a way of experimenting and building our hypotheses of the world. So based on that theory, if these biological systems are trying to get very good at predicting the world, we thought that if we could actually make the world more predictable because we don't have the ability, unlike in an artificial neural network, to change the weights of these neurons. If they did the desirable thing, which is move the paddle to hit the ball and we gave them a predictable stimulus, it would make the world more predictable and that would be a good thing. And if they missed the ball, we would feed them unpredictable information and that would cause them to not do that. So it turns out by having these two push and pull signals, We were able to start to get the neurons to uh, play the game. And this was a world first that we showed. And this was published, I think, in 2022 in the journal Neuron. And so that was the interesting sort of discovery. But alongside that, we also said, what if we didn't have to use mice and we could do them from stem cells? So adult-induced pluripotent stem cells. And it turned out that that was actually a really great opportunity to sort of test some ideas. And we found that the human cells actually had better performance than the mice cells. And there was a secondary side effect of that, which is the fact that there's a lot of work that already exists in the human stem cell line, particularly looking at disease conditions. So the side effect of what we were doing with these human stem cells was also the ability to start thinking about drug discovery and disease modeling with the tech that we were building. So that's uh, what we did in a nutshell. A rather large one, that is.
1: Okay. I have many questions. Yep. That's incredible for a start. Thank you. Let's start, start with that. It also sounds very digital, very binary. It's an organic material, but it's still got this off-on characteristic, which is amazing.
2: 100%. And that's actually one of the hardest things is the fact that it's actually not binary. It's actually analog. So this is an analog computing system that has to be translated into digital binary form and back again. And so this is you know, a challenge that we're working on at the moment as well internally in the company.
1: Okay. I want to talk to you about the company in just a moment, but before we get there, what was the journey to get to the point where you start the company, like your academic background and then landing at the front door of starting this new company?
2: Yeah. So my background actually is in medicine. So I studied medicine at the University of Melbourne, did some research fellowship at Johns Hopkins. I actually worked as a resident for about two years, intern and resident. But then my startup journey actually started out in my final year of medical school, where I entered into a Microsoft competition called the Imagine Cup, won a $75,000 grant for an idea, which was, you know, you could rebuild a digital stethoscope that you could plug into your smartphone.
1: That was in the US or Australia? That was in Australia. Right. Yeah. Okay. Amazing. So
2: this was way back in, I think, 20, 2012. And this was even before MedTech was a thing. So I did that, you know, I was able to actually build a startup around that. So I was the founder and CTO of a startup called ClinicCloud, where we had raised about a $5 million round and we had product in FDA and CE certified and we were selling to Best Buy and so forth. But we couldn't really scale. It was hard because this was pre-COVID. And we were also targeting the US market heavily, which unfortunately had a regime change in 2016. That meant that it was difficult for us to get a B2E deal done with the VA because nobody knew where the funding was going to come from, whether it was going to stay as Obamacare or Trump care or, you know, back to Obamacare kind of thing. So now you know we fast forward to about 2018. 2017, 2018 was a bit of a terrible couple of years because we had no idea we were burning cash. And then around 2018 I decided to close down that business. And while that was happening, I was very interested in the first AI spring that happened. And uh, you may recall it was the uh, hot dog or not moment where everything was a convolutional neural network and you could do image recognition and so forth. But I didn't want to do another convolutional neural net for X company. It's the same thing, which is what's happening right now, where if you're an LLM for X or you're you you know you're a ChatGPT rapper, you would be dead if they decided that they were going to do something to eat your product. So I somehow came across an article that was written by Demis Hassabis in 2017 and the journal Neuron, where he educated for the machine learning and AI community to re-engage with neuroscience because that's where all the initial innovations had started from. I mean, we called them artificial neural networks because we believe that's what the neurons were doing. And so I was inspired. I went over to the University of Melbourne, the Florian Institute of Neuroscience, and I was like, hey guys, tell me what's exciting in your world. I'd love to be involved. And they were telling me about this gadget, this innovation that had been, you know, developed about a decade earlier called the multi electrode Array, where you can read the electroactivity from the neurons and you can also provide a stim. And it just occurred to me, I was like, wait a minute, if we can read and we can write, why don't we use it to compute? And that was where the idea of Cortical Labs came from. And um, I started out the company thinking that I could build a biological computer. Uh, and I mean, how hard could it be? And I'm still here trying to figure out the, the mysteries of how the neurons are computing.
1: So Cortical Labs, you obviously found, what's the kind of mission statement? Is this a brain-computer interface, or is it storage, or is it literally a processor? Where do you see the technology going? So it's actually interesting that you said it's closer to a processor,
2: but a processor that is biological, which also then means that we can actually use it for two things. We can use it for compute, for processing, for intelligence. But on the flip side, we can also use it for life sciences, for disease modeling, for drug discovery. The closest thing I would liken this to, or a way of a model to think about this, is it's an inverted BCI. It's an inside-out BCI, because if you think about what a BCI is trying to do, it's trying to put a chip into a brain. Now, there are issues with that. For instance, tissue rejection, you know, you can crack open a skull, and there's already a pre-existing, very complex organism that you have to, like, deal with. On the other hand, what we're doing is we're building a brain around the chip. So we start with the silicon, we start with the electronics first, and then we build the structures, the biological structures on top of that. And we think that's actually a better way of trying to understand how these systems work, because you're starting with a simpler model. Kind of like when you're doing mathematics, you don't start with a quartic or cubic equation, you start with a linear equation, and then you build your understanding up along the way.
1: This is not meant to be a diversion, but there must have been a lot of conversations about the ethics involved here. And What does this actually mean if you're using stem cell biological material, a biological life, and then it's classified as a processor? How do you look at that?
2: Yeah, I think it's a really interesting question and stuff that we've been thinking about as well. And the reason why we heavily engage with the bioethics community is because it's a conversation that needs to be continuously had, right? You know, people who spend a lot more time thinking about this, the ramifications, the side effects, the benefits of this kind of technology. So there are ethical questions that need to be asked, and these need to be balanced against the use cases, right? What are we using this for? Is this an ethical outcome? The reason for saying why I think it is, is because regardless of whether we do this or not, people are growing neural stem cells in labs for drug discovery. You know, that's how we use it for modeling disease conditions that are very rare, very hard to test on living patients, because it would be unethical if we did it on these living patients. So we don't think it's actually beyond that to say, hey, you know what, maybe we can use the same system, the same methodologies that we're using for drug discovery and testing for computation. Can we start using them to do basic intelligence and automation tasks kind of thing? Because otherwise, you know, <laughs> what we do is we grow them, we pour drugs in them, and then we flush them down the drain when we're done with them. So we think that there is a, a other use case, which I think would be ethical in this instance.
1: To my ears, it sounds a lot like science fiction, a lot of this conversation, but I'm sure you've heard that many times. So when you are out and about selling to potential investors or even potential research partners, you're telling this story. What reaction do you get? Is it a hard sell? Isn't it an easy sell? What does it feel like? It's really interesting because I'm sure
2: you know like the discussions with
1: DTEC companies and
2: technologies where... There is either a, a market risk or a tech risk, right? And most companies, you know, like let's say the clean meat industry is more of a tech risk, right? We know what, how big the market is, everyone has to eat, and if you solve it, it's a big market. On the other hand, there are also consumer tech companies where there is a low tech risk but high market risk, so forth. We have the unfortunate position of being in the bottom left corner of both having market risk and tech risk. It's interesting because a lot of investors get turned off by being in their bottom corner. But some investors, the thrill seekers, are actually really excited about that because A, because there's a tech risk, there is a strong technical moat that comes if you accomplish something. But secondarily, because it's a market risk and most people can't stomach the the inability to imagine a market with this kind of technology means that it could be any size. It could be the size of the silicon industry or bigger. And so I think that's the reaction we usually get is get out of here and wait, how big is it? let me think about it. This sounds very interesting if it's in our mandate and so forth. So that's that one. I think it's a hard one because it requires a significant amount of mental hoops to get through because there's, well, we grow the cells. We do not do this. We, we train them and there are other things and we can put disease states in, we can drug them, we can test them and, and so forth that isn't common yet to the point where you can easily grasp it. And so, yeah, That is something that we're working on. How do we make this technology more accessible? How do we come up with educational content? How do we teach people how this all works and how they can potentially use it in their own
1: sort of professional careers? Quite amazing. I'm talking to Hon Wen Chong, the founder and chief executive officer at Cortical Labs. Hon, just before we hit the record button, you were telling me about a trip to San Francisco where you've bumped into that reporting legend, Robert Scoble. Yep. So just talk me through that again. That was quite incredible.
2: Yeah, it, it is quite a fascinating turn of events. So I got to San Francisco, so I was a little bit delayed in my flight because I missed it and then got in. And he was so kind to pick me up. So we went for a drive in his Tesla and we had dinner. But at the same time, I was carrying a CL1 device, which is our, the commercial product that we're working on, which keeps the biological neurons alive. But also, we bundle it together with our own system that allows us to read and write and our own APIs around it. So anyway, we uh, finished up dinner and I was like, hey, so I got the CL1. Do you want to have a look at it? And he's like, sure. So he then follows me into my hotel room, crack open the case, and he just pulls out his phone he starts recording because we're supposed to do a podcast. And I think it was like the day before, like something like that, but I missed it. I said, well, I guess we're doing the podcast now. So he starts recording it and I'm walking him through, you know, this is where the neurons go. This is the artificial lung system. This is the kidneys and this is the heart. This is all to, to keep the cells alive. And he posted it on, on Twitter. And uh, yeah, it ended up getting more than a million views and a lot of attention. So yeah, it's a crazy kind of uh, space where anything can happen.
1: Yeah, that's part of your education program, right? There's a million people who know more about you now than they did before. When you founded the company, you've spoken to people. Financing, where, where are you at with that? What kind of raises do you need for a company like this?
2: So I think it's a great question. And um, I don't know if there's actually any real playbook for this. And so as a company, we try to be conservative. We try to be efficient with our capital spend. We were very fortunate in the early days to attract the attention of, of Nikki Skavak, who's the partner at Blackbird. And uh, I think they have a remit to do one or two sort of wacky ideas a year kind of thing. And we fell into the bucket. So Blackbird wrote us our first check. For a first trench of 500000 Australian dollars, which I built a, a small team, got a lab going, bought the equipment, but only left, I think it was about 200K or 150K. And I had to go back and say, guys, I really need more in order to get to the next phase. And they were supportive enough to give us an extra 500K. I think we were getting into 2020 region and the world kind of locked down. It was a hard decision because I, I was just about to go back out and raise more. And uh, couldn't do it, so I spoke to the team and said, "Look, guys, we're going to jettison all the PR, all the marketing, everything. We're just going to focus on the science. Hopefully, we'll ride out this storm and um, publish our results, finding and you know, prove even to the most skeptical scientists that you could actually get this system to work." So we did that. So in twenty twenty one, we did a extension raise led by January Capital and a bunch of other investors, and that got us all the way to the publication of the paper, and that caught the attention of Horizons Ventures, who then led our latest round alongside with Radar Ventures, Blackbird participating again, and as co Investors.
1: Wow, that's quite a list. Yeah. Quite a uh, primo list of investors you've got right there. Yes. So tell me this, what's it like starting a company, you know, wacky science, as you put it, or a wacky uh, startup? In Australia, there's a small pool of people who would uh, be into ideas of, as, you know, out there as this one kind of started as. 100%. So I think there are pros and cons
2: in Australia. Certainly the one of the big pros is the fact that we have 40% back for the R&D tax incentive. That certainly helped us along the way. There were many times where I would be praying for our R&D to come in and, you know, that would give us an extra three to four months runway so that I could get to the next milestone. The other thing about Australia is because we're so far from the rest of the world, it lets us focus on just building the best stuff and doing the good science without being distracted by everything else that happens. There is less of the founder peacocking that happens in the Bay Area and so forth. But the downside is your capital pool is much smaller. And so you're forced to start thinking about expanding or seeking funds from overseas from the get-go as an Australian deep tech startup. So, you know, there are both, you know, pros and cons, but we also have great talent coming out from a university systems. And right now with the Australian dollar being so cheap compared to the US dollars, it's actually really, really good time to build a deep tech startup in Australia.
1: So let's talk about the, the government support. You've talked about the R&D tax incentive being critical to helping your funding runway, but what else do you look at? government for, or you don't really look at the government? What are, what are the things that help? What are the things that don't help? Are you able to get access to talent easily from overseas? What are some of the issues that you face that are impacted by government policy?
2: Well, I mean, the thing about our work is that, and I feel that this is the case with, with government, is that there's always a bit of a, a lag phase. So I think the government is 100% with quantum right now, but it did take Michelle Simmons and a whole bunch of people a long time to get to that point. We certainly missed a bug with AI, generative AI. We really have no, no say in fundamental models. So for us, it's kind of, well, we see this as a pattern, so we don't really focus too heavily on government. Besides, you know, the R&D tech incentive, which is kind of open to everybody, really, and nothing specific to any particular industry. So there's talk about the National Reconstruction Fund. It's very hard to get to the right people about that. Trying to talk to Ed Huzik's staffers, it's difficult because they have very set ideas about what particular technologies they want to focus on. That probably a list that, you know, BCG or McKinsey have provided. And when you're trying to say, hey, but this is new, this has just come out, it's very hard to get the message across. Having said that, I mean, I have also spoken to a couple of parliamentarians and have showed them the US bio industry, biomanufacturing strategic document that was released by the White House. I think they're putting in $5 billion or $6 billion into that. Kind of thing. And I'm like, hey, guys, you do realize that our technology was actually named in that strategic document that the Americans are investing in this. We invented it. Why are we not actually putting any more money into this space? And it's a sad, unfortunate fact of what happens, right? So Synchron is another example where we literally kind of invented the BCI space with Synchron, or at least the clinical BCI. But now they've turned into a US company. You know, that's where the capital was, that's where they were able to grow and get more talent. So, you know, hopefully we don't have to go down this path and that there is a lot of work that still can happen in Australia. And, you know, hopefully somebody will help us along the way. But, you know.
1: I mean, of a deep tech company like yours, it's, it is quite extraordinary that this is a venture-backed operation rather than a university Australian Research Council type funded operation.
2: Yeah. I mean, the really hard thing as well is in the grant system, you need a legacy, and very rarely do grants actually look at Blue Ocean ideas. So this would have had zero chance of ever becoming a ARC-funded grant or an HMRC or MRFF, primarily because this was a startup. I was not in the academic system. But my CSO was, but he was a junior. And yeah, in order to get through to that, you need a PI who had many years of experience to get it across the line. So it is surprising and also not surprising that this is venture-backed because it's only through venture-backed that you can actually start exploring fresh novel ideas that are outside of the grant committee sort of purview.
1: Wow, well, amazing. Okay, Hon Wen Chong, I'm going to finish up on this one. I'm glad you mentioned Nicholas Opie Synchron. He just won Disruptor of the Year Award at our awards just recently. And it was the first time that I've met him, and I was very pleased to have met him because, God, what a crazy, interesting story his is. So let me ask you this. With your company, would your expectation be that you can remain Australian, remain in Australia, or it doesn't matter? What's your current thinking? So my thinking
2: is that there is actually no reason why we can't remain in Australia. So one of the core milestones that we're working towards is actually building the world's first neural data center here in our lab in Melbourne. What's fascinating about this is the this idea that you don't necessarily need a wet lab. You don't necessarily have to be physically located next to the neurons and feed them and so forth when we can do it for you, as long as we provide you with the ability to communicate and to train these neurons remotely. And I guess that was kind of the reason why this kind of caught the attention of Werner Vogels, who's the CTO of Amazon. He came down, he saw the stuff, and you know, we asked him, why were you interested in this? He said, well, I heard you got something to learn something, which is always an interesting fact for him. And he's like, but I also heard that you got it to do with very little energy and no cooling required. And he said, as a cloud computing provider, like those are the, well, that is the biggest OpEx for him, the cooling and the energy required once you
1: purchase the hardware. Wow. Okay. Yeah, that's incredible. And a big challenge for the data center industry, the cloud industry, all those people, right? 100%. And I think, you know, this is something that we
2: need to start thinking about naturally inspired designs, primarily because of the fact that. A, there is the climate challenge, right, and the, the need for us to move to renewables as an energy source. The issue here is that in renewables, unless we can go with nuclear or you know fusion becomes a thing, isn't really going to fill the gap that is what we're going to end up with if we remove fossil fuels. So the other side of the equation is we need to come up with technologies that are far more energy efficient than we would currently have intelligence ai isn't going anywhere so what we really need are ai systems or intelligence systems that sip the fractional energy that current gpus are doing and i think you know biology may have the answer for that
1: wow what an amazing conversation hon thank you so much for joining us here on the commercial disco we will certainly be watching with interest as you progress the tech and the company thank you james
0: joining us on this episode of the commercial disco podcast proudly brought to you by CSIRO don't forget to like subscribe and leave a review wherever you heard us for the latest on tech innovation and public policy visit innovationoz.com, and stay connected with us on social media to ask questions or suggest future guests until next time this is the commercial disco wishing you an inspired week ahead